Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, Chapter 47 While Moroni was able to quell the uprising in the Nephite nation, which began, as we noted previously, by a dissension in the church that was described in Alma chapter 45, we learned in the previous chapter, Alma chapter 46, that the leader of this uprising lived on. That, of course, was Amalickiah. He escaped with a few of his followers into the land of Nephi. And this is a good time to remember that, counterintuitively, the land of Nephi was home to the Lamanite kingdom. And this has been true ever since the great Nephite migration from that place that took place under the leadership of King Mosiah I, the father of Benjamin. Well, we read with a feeling of certain foreboding in Alma chapter 46, verse 33, that despite Captain Moroni's success in cutting off the armies of Amalickiah on their way to the land of Nephi, that, quote, Amalickiah himself fled with a small number of his men. It is in this chapter, Alma chapter 47, that we will see the effects of this escape. We'll see, as Mormon will put it, quote, the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. In the next two chapters, in fact, we'll see evidence that Amalickiah's ambitions seem to have no bounds. What we know of him from the text so far is that, quote, Amalickiah was desirous to be a king. It said that in verse 4 of Alma chapter 46, and that he had followers who desired the same outcome. We also learned in Alma chapter 46 that he had a certain endowment of talent that could help him in his pursuit of kingship. He was a large and a strong man, as we were told in verse 3, and that those in his employ were led by his flatteries, as verse 5 told us. Clearly, Amalickiah was gifted in the art of persuasion. Well, we can't help but be incredulous as we read Amalickiah's actions, his fraud and deceit, as it will later be described in this chapter, Alma chapter 47. It seems that Amalickiah was tireless in his efforts and incessant in his political strivings. As I mentioned in the previous chapter, the scope of Amalickiah's ambition seems to keep expanding as we progress from chapter to chapter. We learned in Alma chapter 45 that Amalickiah rebuffed Helaman's efforts to regulate the church and its members with the word. Since others were like-minded, this allowed Amalickiah to lead a dissension. Then, in Alma chapter 46, we read that Amalickiah was desirous to be a king. In this chapter, Alma chapter 47, we will find that Amalickiah progresses from the captain of a faction of the Lamanite army to the leader of the entire Lamanite army to the actual king of the entire Lamanite nation. 
Then, as if this were not enough, we will find in verse 2 of Alma chapter 48 that it doesn't stop there. Amalekiah, quote, sought also to reign over all the land, yea, and over all the people who were in the land, the Nephites as well as the Lamanites. Why was this? What motivated this man? There are other moments in Scripture where we read that the Lord's servants are unable to rest. This causes them to be tireless in their efforts to work in his service. Uh, This was true for Jeremiah, who had fire in his bones, or Ether, who hid in the cavity of a rock, and most recently of Alma, in the opening verse of Alma chapter 43, who could not rest, as it said, so he also went forth among the people. Well, these are righteous causes, and the motivation and sustenance of these great prophets is understandable, and hopefully it's even relatable. It reflects the work ethic of the Good Shepherd himself. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, as Psalm 121 verse 4 says. But what of a character like Amalickiah? His motivation is coming from an entirely different source. It reflects the restlessness of Satan himself, I think, who, quote, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. That's out of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Remember, Amalickiah was not only motivated, but he was talented. We just read of his notable strength and his use of the Machiavellian tool of flattery. The same was was said by the way of Sherem in Jacob chapter 7. In addition to this, Amalickiah clearly had a tireless work ethic. And as we will see in this chapter, he was willing to take calculated risks. These are all characteristics that can be seen in the ascent of today's political power brokers, and they are generally considered to be positive traits. But Amalickiah shows us that talents such as these can be used towards the end of some very dark achievements. And in fact, if, in addition to his flatteries, Amalickiah can incite his followers to anger, then they can be blinded as to his actual motivations. This is precisely what Amalickiah did when he came to the Lamanite kingdom. We're told in verse 3 of this chapter that, quote, "...he had hardened the hearts of the Lamanites and blinded their minds, and stirred them up to anger." insomuch that he had gathered together a numerous host to go to battle against the Nephites. And we can remember that this is happening uh, across a four-year time span because it's coinciding with the four-year season of peace that we read of at the end of the previous chapter. Well, as we consider this portrait of Amalickiah, we are still left to wonder again as to his motivation. What were the rewards for this miserable man who worked without abating? We can only guess that he enjoyed the immediate and intoxicating rewards that come from manipulating others for gain. The more riches and power tend to follow, uh, or I should say then, more riches and power tend to follow, yet they are never enough. The earliest scriptural account of this sequence is found in Genesis, when the ambitious Cain envied his brother mocked the Lord with an unholy sacrifice, and then murdered his brother after forming an alliance with Lucifer himself. In that moment, he exclaimed, Truly I am Mayhem, the master of this great secret, that I may murder and get gain. Ironically, after so doing, Cain cried out in his inebriated ignorance, I am free. Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. 
We see evidence of this same process throughout the Book of Mormon. It is the ascent, or more appropriately, the descent of the enemies of Christ. And it always begins the same way as dissent from the Lord's prophet. How can we avoid following a similar path? And how can we avoid being deceived by others who want to lead us through flattery and the prospect of gain down such a path? The answer lies once again in the counsel of the prophet. We can avoid the deception of the last days by treasuring the word, as the Savior told us to do in the Olivet Discourse. Today, this comes from the scripturally corroborating combination of ancient and modern prophets. We can remember the words of President Ezra Taft Benson, for example, to beware of pride, to consider it as the universal sin, the great vice. This, as well as its companion sin of envy, was the thing that undoubtedly blinded Cain and Amalekiah, and it certainly can blind us. No wonder Alma once asked the following as he addressed the people of Zarahemla in Alma chapter 5. Behold, are ye stripped of pride? I say unto you, if ye are not, ye are not prepared to meet God. And to that we can add, of course, that if ye are not stripped of pride, you're going to be more prone to deception. The Nama continues, Behold, ye must prepare quickly, for the kingdom of heaven is soon at hand, and such an one hath not eternal life. Behold, I say, is there one among you who is not stripped of envy? I say unto you that such an one is not prepared. And I would that he should prepare quickly, for the hour is close at hand, and he knoweth not when the time shall come, for such an one is not found guiltless. Well, this gives us great insight, I think, into how we can shore ourselves up and prepare ourselves and make sure that we are not subject to the deceptions of someone like an Amalekiah. We can treasure up the word of ancient and modern prophets and internalize this word to the degree that, as Alma said, it is found in us. And as Alma has told us here, we can see to it throughout this process and through the help of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are stripped of pride and stripped of envy. Well, now to look at the structure of this great chapter. It's 36 verses long. In the first verse, we find Amalekiah convincing the king of the Lamanites to go to war again against the Nephites. Now again, he had a four-year period in which to do this. Then in verse 2, we discover something very interesting. And this undoubtedly is because of the memory of what occurred in the land of Manti in 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 the previous encounter between the Lamanites and the Nephites. The majority of the Lamanites actually refuse the proclamation that is sent by the king to go to war. So because of this, we see in verses 3 through 7 that the Lamanite king employs Amalekiah. He already sees him as an ally. Amalekiah has been among him now for four years. So he employs him to compel all Lamanites to arms. And he takes his new army to Oneida to confront the Lamanite dissenters. Through all of this, Amalekiah has ulterior motives. And so when the king employs him to do this thing, he implements his ulterior plan to actually dethrone the Lamanite king. So we'll read about that in verses 8 and 9. Then in verses 10 through 12, we'll find that Amalekiah calls for the leader of the Lamanite dissenters, whose name is Lehontai. So he approaches Lehontai at the base of the mountain. He calls for him four times. 
Nihantai finally does give audience to Amalekiah, and we find in verses 13 through 16 that Amalekiah invites Lahantai to participate in a conspiracy. So this conspiracy is that Amalekiah will allow his army to succumb to Lehantai, and then Amalekiah can become a second leader over the whole army. This all goes according to Amalekiah's plans. Once he does become second in command, he then murders Lehantai, and he does so with poison, poison by degrees, as it says in verse 18. And in so doing, Amalekiah becomes chief commander over the entire Lamanite army. In verses 20 through 23, with the entire Lamanite army in tow, Amalekiah returns to the city of Nephi. He goes at this point to meet the king, and we read of a custom that was actually imported from the Nephites uh, where uh, the king's subjects would bow before him, and then the king would stretch forth his hand to raise them. We read about that in verse 23. Well, we see in verses 24 through 28 that this provides an opportunity for these conspirators to stab the king. And so we find that Amalekiah's servant was employed to do this. And he stabs the Lamanite king in this moment and then very craftily blames the king's servants. And so they are framed in this instance for this treacherous act that is committed by this servant of Amalekiah not the servants of the kings. So again, we read about this in verses 24 through 28. The king's servants then have no choice but to flee for their lives uh, because they have been framed for this act of murdering the king. And interestingly, we'll discover in verses 29 and 30 that in their flight, these servants cross the border into Lamanite or into Nephite territory and go to none other place but to Jershon this place that has been a, 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 a place of refuge for people that have, have become refugees and have come from the land of Nephi, or in the case of the poor Zoramites, have come from the land of Antionum. Then uh, we're certainly kind of incredulous at this point at everything that Amalekiah has accomplished, and it just continues. In verses 31 through 34, we find Amalekiah taking possession of the city of Nephi. Then at this point, he actually convinces the queen that the king was killed by his own servants. And so then, in verse 35, we find that Amalekiah marries the queen, and in so doing, he obtains the entire Lamanite kingdom. So this is the story of the ascent of Amalekiah. Alma chapter 47, I think, leaves the reader completely agog. Now, this final verse, verse 36 Um, This is where Mormon will pause and comment generally on the depravity of Nephite dissenters. Well, with that introduction, let's return to verse 1 now for a reading. Now, we will return in our record to Amalickiah and those who had fled with him into the wilderness. So again, that's a continuity piece from the previous chapter where he found that Moroni and his armies had cut off Amalickiah and their armies of dissenters who decided to leave Nephite territory generally to leave the Nephite nation and go to the Lamanite kingdom. And so Moroni successfully cut them off, brought them back to Zarahemla, and uh, they entered into a covenant of peace, except for the few who would not enter into that covenant, and they were executed. But in all of this, it turns out that Amalickiah himself and a few of his followers actually fled, and they did make it 
into the Lamanite kingdom. So that's what we're reading of here in verse 1. So again, our record to Amalekiah and those who had fled with him into the wilderness. For behold, he had taken those who went with him and went up into the land of Nephi among the Lamanites, and did stir up the Lamanites to anger against the people of Nephi, insomuch that the king of the Lamanites sent a proclamation throughout all his land, among all his people, that they should gather themselves together again to go to battle against the Nephites. Verse 2, And it came to pass that when the proclamation had gone forth among them, they were exceedingly afraid. So just pause here and notice how proclamation is being used here. There was a proclamation of religious freedom that we read about a while back, and there have also been other proclamations. Uh, There was one from Mosiah, and uh, there was a proclamation that was instigated by King Benjamin, although I think enacted by Mosiah, to gather everyone together so that he could give his final words to the people. So here, proclamation is being used in a different way. In this case, it's a proclamation of war. The king of the Lamanites is essentially commanding all of his subjects to go to war. So now we're finding in verse 2 that not all want to comply. And that undoubtedly is because of the memory of their encounter with Captain Moroni and his Nephite armies when they met in the land of Manti, uh, that thing that we read about in Alma chapter 43 and 44. So again, verse 2, And it came to pass that when the proclamation had gone forth among them, they were exceedingly afraid. Yea, they feared to displease the king, and they also feared to go to battle against the Nephites, lest they should lose their lives. And it came to pass that they would not, or the more part of them would not, obey the commandments of the king. We might remember that in the previous chapter, Amalickiah's problem in gathering followers in his Nephite dissension was that not all of them believed in the just uh, or the justness of their cause. And so they defected from Amalickiah and were willing to enter into a covenant of peace with Moroni. So something similar is happening here. This isn't uh, simply an act of cowardice on the part of the Lamanites. They simply probably do not have a deep conviction in a just cause. And so they are afraid to not follow the king, but they're also afraid that they'll die at the hands of the Nephites. And they don't really necessarily believe in the just nature of their cause unless, and here's the key, They are sufficiently stirred up to anger with the grievance narrative. That's the thing that pushes them over the edge. And that's how Amalickiah accomplishes this. The king of the Lamanites knows that Amalickiah is really good at doing this. And so we come to this section now in verse 3. And now it came to pass that the king was wroth because of their disobedience. Therefore he gave Amalickiah the command of that part of his army, which was obedient unto his commands, and commanded him that he should go forth and compel them to arms. So the them here is those who were not willing to go to war and who were disobedient to the king's proclamation. And we'll find in just a moment that they had their own leader. Their leader was Lehontai, and they went to a new place. They went to the hill Oneida, and they gathered. They combined there in in their efforts to disobey the king and to somehow combine against him. Verse 4, Now behold, this was the desire of Amalickiah. So now it's here where we understand that Amalickiah has ulterior motives in all of this uh, that run counter to what the king knows of. For he being a very subtle man to do evil, therefore he laid the plan in his heart to dethrone the king of the Lamanites. Now remember, this was his original plan. He had the desire to be a king that we read of in the previous chapter, and he's now had four years to show his alliance to the king. That's a long time. The king of the Lamanites would have developed trust in Amalickiah, clearly a lot of trust. 
Verse 5, And now he had got the command of those parts of the Lamanites who were in favor of the king. And he sought to gain favor of those who were not obedient. Therefore he went forward to the place which was called Oneida, for thither had all the Lamanites fled. Which Lamanites? It's the ones who do not want to follow the proclamation. For they discovered the army coming, and supposing that they were coming to destroy them, they fled to Oneida to the place of arms. And they had appointed a man to be a king and a leader over them, being fixed in their minds with a determined resolution that they would not be subjected to go against the Nephites. So this went so far that this was a dissension. These Lamanites that would not follow this proclamation appointed their own king, and that was Lehontai. They were going to create their own nation, and they were not going to be subject to the proclamations of the king of the Lamanites. They did not want to go to war against the Nephites. Verse 7, And it came to pass that they had gathered themselves together upon the top of the mount, which was called Antipas, in preparation to battle. So this is in the the place called Oneida. There's a mountain there called Antipas. And this is where these people are gathered in preparation for battle. This is not a perfect comparison, but we might think of Masada and how it is that there were ancient uh, Israelites who lived not long before the meridian of time in that particular place, and who were sieged by the Romans. Antipas seems similarly to be a high place where this group of people under Lehontai's leadership are holding out and trying to protect themselves from the onslaught of the Lamanite king. So here's the point now in which Amalekiah will implement his ulterior plan to dethrone the Lamanite king. So in verse 8, Now it was not Amalekiah's intention to give them battle according to the commandments of the king. But behold, it was his intention to gain favor with the armies of the Lamanites that he might place himself at their head and dethrone the king and take possession of the kingdom. And behold, it came to pass that he caused his army to pitch their tents in the valley, which was near the Mount Antipas. So here is this army that's loyal to the king under the leadership of Amalickiah, and they have now approached the base of this hill. Verse 10, And it came to pass that when it was night, Amalickiah sent a secret embassy into the Mount Antipas, desiring that the leader of those who were upon the mount, whose name was Lehontai, that he should come down to the foot of the mount, for he desired to speak with him. So this is how Amalickiah's plan is progressing. He wants to speak with Lehontai. We don't quite understand why yet, but we're about to. It's because he wants Lehontai to participate in a conspiracy. Verse 11, And it came to pass that when Lehontai received the message, He durst not go down to the foot of the mount. And it came to pass that Amalickiah sent again the second time, desiring him to come down. And it came to pass that Lehontai would not. And he sent again the third time. And it came to pass that when Amalickiah had found that he could not get Lehontai to come down off the mount, he went up into the mount, nearly to Lehontai's camp. Uh, So, again, we can see just how incessant Amalickiah is here. And Amalickiah sent again the fourth time his message unto Lehontai, desiring that he would come down and that he would bring his guards with him. So now they finally meet in verse 13, and Amalickiah is able to have this dialogue with Lehontai. And it came to pass that when Lehontai had come down with his guards to Amalickiah, that Amalickiah desired him to come down with his army in the nighttime and surround those men in their camps over whom the king had given him command and that he would deliver them up into Lehontai's hands if he would make him, Amalickiah, a second leader over the whole army. So there's the conspiracy. And now Amalickiah is appealing to Lehontai's greed and quest for power. 
to the degree that Lehontai is able to overlook Amalekiah's obviously untrustworthy nature as he's proposing this conspiracy. Of this incident, Hugh Nibley has written, Amalekiah did stir up the Lamanites to anger against the people of Nephi to such a degree that the Lamanite king ordered a general mobilization for war. Such an order to a people who had just had their fill of war was coolly received, and most of the people refused to obey it, and organized a huge protest meeting at the marshalling area at Oneida, electing a king for themselves on a no-war platform. The fact that Lehontai had to be urged four times before he would risk a secret meeting with Amalekiah shows that the latter already had something of a reputation as a smooth operator. And that's a, a great point by Nibley. Uh, Lehontai already would have known Amalekiah, and he would have known that he's a flatterer and a smooth operator, and he rejected this meeting four times. Verse 14, And it came to pass that Lehontai came down with his men, So now we can see that Lehontai has decided to go ahead and enter into this conspiracy with Amalekiah. He came down with his men and surrounded the men of Amalekiah, so that before they awoke at the dawn of the day, they were surrounded by the armies of Lehontai. And it came to pass that when they saw that they were surrounded, meaning the armies of Amalekiah who were loyal to the king's edict to go to war, they were now surrounded by Lehontai's armies who had come down from the mountain in the night. When they saw that they were surrounded, they pled with Amalekiah that he would suffer them to fall in with their brethren, that they might not be destroyed. Now this was the very thing which Amalekiah desired. So Amalekiah didn't even have to tell them. He didn't even have to suggest that to them. They suggested it themselves. They simply wanted to fall in with their brethren. This shows again that their, their sense of cause was fairly weak. And so they were able to shift their loyalty to a new leader and to a new cause. Verse 16, and it came to pass that he delivered his men contrary to the commands of the king. So he, in this case, is Amalekiah, and he is now, instead of gathering the armies of Lehontai and bringing them back to the king as uh, one whole group that's loyal to the commands of the king, uh, instead Amalekiah is allowing his loyal armies to submit to Lehontai's forces. Now this was the thing that Amalekiah desired, that he might accomplish his designs in dethroning the king. Robert D. Hales once spoke of this incident in a talk called Christian Courage. He said, By arguments and accusations, some people bait us to leave the high ground. The high ground is where the light is. It's where we see the first light of morning and the last light in the evening. It is the safe ground. It is true and where knowledge is. Sometimes others want us to come down off the high ground and join them in a theological scrum in the mud. These few contentious individuals are set on picking religious fights, online or in person. We are always better staying on the higher ground of mutual respect and love. When we choose to stay on high ground by refusing to participate in theological arguments, we follow the example of the prophet Nehemiah, who built a wall around Jerusalem. Nehemiah's enemies entreated him to meet them on the plain where they thought to do him mischief. Unlike the Hontai, however, Nehemiah wisely refused their offer with this message, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? That was recorded in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 2-3. through three. We too have a great work to do, which will not be accomplished if we allow ourselves to stop and argue and be distracted. Evil will always be with us in this world. Part of mortality's great test is to be in the world without becoming like the world. In his intercessory prayer, the Savior asked his Heavenly Father, 
I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. But even as the Savior warned of persecution, he promised peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As he said in John chapter 14, verse 27. I testify that with the mantle of his peace upon us, the first presidency's promise will be fulfilled, which says, quote, The opposition, which may seem hard to bear, will be a blessing to the kingdom of God upon the earth. That's a wonderful talk by Elder Hales and the way in which he relates the high ground that Lehontai had and where he finally succumbed to the persuasions of Amalekiah, unlike Nehemiah, who was doing a great work and could not come down. It's a really great comparison and something to think about. So now as we kind of return to the text here and look at what it is that Amalekiah is doing, he clearly has accomplished his designs on Lehontai, but he's not done yet. Now he's second in command to Lehontai as per their conspiracy, but now Lehontai will become a victim to Amalekiah's designs. So verse 17, now it was the custom among the Lamanites if their chief leader was killed to appoint the second leader to be their chief leader. That's something that Lehontai would have known, and so it really would have given him pause when Amalekiah proposed this plan, but he still followed through with it. Verse 18, And it came to pass that Amalekiah caused that one of his servants should administer poison by degrees to Lehontai, that he died. It's quite interesting that Lehontai wasn't simply poisoned, but he was poisoned by degrees. Uh, Elder Delanate Jokes spoke of this subject. He said Lehontai was poisoned by degrees, Have you ever noticed Satan attempting to spiritually poison you by degrees? Satan seeks to deceive us about right and wrong and persuade us that there is no such thing as sin. This detour typically starts off with what seems to be only a small departure. Just try it once. One beer or one cigarette or one pornographic movie won't hurt. What all of these departures have in common is that each of them is addictive. Addiction is a condition in which we surrender part of our power of choice. Verse 19, Now, when Lehontai was dead, the Lamanites appointed Amalekiah to be their leader and their chief commander. So now we can see that Amalekiah has gathered all of the armies together, and in a strange way, he has unified all of them under his leadership. Now he will have the ability to march back into the land of Nephi, into the city of Nephi, the capital city where the king dwells. He'll be able to approach the king with this unified army, creating the obvious impression that he has done just what the king has commanded him to do. In a sense, he has, but as we will see, Amalekiah's designs go well beyond this. So verse 20, And it came to pass that Amalekiah marched with his armies, for he had gained his desires to the land of Nephi, to the city of Nephi, which was the chief city. This, of course, is rich with history, this chief city, going all the way back, undoubtedly, to Nephi himself. And uh, we can remember how it was that Lamoni's father lived in this chief city as well. So same place, and here is Amalickiah coming back to the king with his armies. Verse 21, And the king came out to meet him with his guards, for he supposed that Amalickiah had fulfilled his commands, and that Amalickiah had gathered together so great an army to go against the Nephites to battle. But behold, as the king came out to meet him, Amalickiah caused that his servants should go forth to meet the king. And they went and bowed themselves before the king as if to reverence him because of his greatness. And it came to pass that the king put forth his hand to raise them, as was the custom with the Lamanites as a token of peace, which custom they had taken from the Nephites. 
All of this, of course, was anticipated by Malachiah. And this particular token of peace, we wonder when they had taken this from the Nephites. Uh, Reynolds and Sojal have said this, A token is a sign, something intended to represent or indicate another thing or an event. Thus the rainbow is a token of God's covenant established with Noah. It is ironic that the token of peace preceded the king's death. Amalickiah sent his servants to greet the king, seemingly to pay him reverence. As was also a custom among the Lamanites, they bowed down to the ground to show their homage to him. Everything went as protocol among them provided. The king put forth his hand to raise them from their position of nothingness, and when he raised the fist, the servant immediately stabbed him to the heart. So that forecasts what we're about to read here in verse 24, which says, And it came to pass that when he, meaning the king, had raised the first, meaning the servant of Amalickiah, when he had raised him first from the ground, behold, he stabbed the king to the heart, and he fell to the earth. Now the servants of the king fled, and the servants of Amalickiah raised a cry. So just to be very clear here, uh, Amalickiah has done this in a way that it can appear that the servants of the king did this. The only people that would know otherwise were those in this immediate uh, setting. And so it was possible to blame the servants of the king. The servants of the king could immediately see this, and so they fled. And so the servants of Amalickiah raised a cry, saying, Behold, the servants of the king have stabbed him to the heart, and he has fallen, and they have fled. Behold, come and see. So they have perfectly framed the servants of the king for this act. And it came to pass that Amalickiah commanded that his armies should march forth and see what had happened to the king. And when they had come to the spot and found the king lying in his gore, Amalickiah pretended to be wroth and said, Whosoever loved the king, let him go forth and pursue his servants that they may be slain. And it came to pass that all they who loved the king when they heard these words, came forth and pursued after the servants of the king. So these people are motivated by a love for the king. They're distressed and alarmed by what has happened. And so they naturally chase the servants of the king. Verse 29, Now when the servants of the king saw an army pursuing after them, they were frightened again and fled into the wilderness. And the way in which it says that they were frightened again suggests that they first would have fled to a place within the Lamanite kingdom as did these defectors who went to the hill Oneida, this place of arms, or to, to Oneida, the place of arms in the hill Antionum, or excuse me, Antipas. But now these servants can see that they need to flee even farther. So it says they went into the wilderness, and that would be the border between the Lamanite kingdom and the Nephite nation. And so, as verse 29 says, they came over into the land of Zarahemla and joined the people of Ammon. Once again, Jershon becomes a place of refuge. Verse 30, And the army which pursued after them returned, having pursued after them in vain. And thus Amalickiah by his fraud gained the hearts of the people. These servants of the king who know better have now fled to Jershon, and they are not in a position to return to the land of Nephi ever uh, among the Lamanite kingdom and enlighten those who think that they were the murderers. So it's just going according to plan here for Malachiah. And as we can see, his plans and ambitions continue. It's now his task to take possession of the city of Nephi, and in that also to take the queen to wife. So verse 31, And it came to pass on the morrow, he entered the city Nephi with his armies and took possession of the cities. That would have been a frightful moment. 
And now it came to pass that the queen, when she had heard that the king was slain, for Amalickiah had sent an embassy to the queen, informing her that the king had been slain by his servants, that he had pursued them with his army, but it was in vain, and that they made their escape. So there's the story that Amalickiah manufactured, and he saw to it, and he made sure that a special message, an embassy, was sent to the queen so that this story could be given to her in this manner. And this way, Amalickiah is controlling the narrative, even for the queen. Verse 33, Therefore, when the queen had received this message, she sent unto Amalickiah, desiring him that he would spare the people of the city. And she also desired him that he should come in unto her. And she also desired him that he should bring witnesses with him to testify concerning the death of the king. And it came to pass that Amalickiah took the same servant that slew the king, and all them who were with him, and went in unto the queen, unto the place where she sat, and they all testified unto her that the king was slain by his own servants. And they said also, They have fled. Does not this testify against them? And thus they satisfied the queen concerning the death of the king. So there's so much about this image and about this scene that is dirty. The way in which it is the servant himself who stabbed the king, who stands before the queen and uh, commits this bald-faced uh, lie and then asks this t- uh, carefully manufactured question. These servants have fled, so does not this testify against them? So verse 35, now this unbelievable thing happens, and it came to pass that Amalickiah sought the favor of the queen. So he surrounded the city's city of Nephi with his armies. There's the threat of force that's there. He's controlled the narrative as it has come to the queen. He has incentivized those um, in his employ, his servants, to lie, and he has made it impossible for the actual uh, king's servants who went into the land of Jershon to come back and to challenge his narrative. So now he is seeking the favor of the queen. So he sought the favor of the queen and took her unto him to wife. And thus by his fraud and by the assistance of his cunning servants, he obtained the kingdom. Yea, he was acknowledged king throughout all the land among all the people of the Lamanites who were composed of the Lamanites and the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites and all the dissenters of the Nephites from the reign of Nephi down to the present time. This verse suggests, by the way, that dissensions among the Nephite uh, kingdom, as it would have been a kingdom back then, uh, that those dissensions were probably something that happened from Nephi uh, all the way down to the present time. And we've only read of a few dissensions here and there that Mormon has provided us with, and that also helps us to think about the Amalekites because we're told about them uh, earlier, such as in Alma chapter 21, and how they were so depraved that they made the Lamanite army even worse and more formidable and kept stirring the Lamanites up to hatred, and they kept perpetuating this grievance narrative so that the Lamanites would want to attack the Nephites. So this verse is helping us see that this pattern of dissension probably began clear back with Nephi's rule. Now here's the final verse, and this does talk, in fact, about dissenters, uh, the depravity, the general depravity of Nephite dissenters. So Mormon comments upon this more broadly. Verse 36, Now these dissenters, having the same instruction and the same information of the Nephites, yea, having been instructed in the same knowledge of the Lord, nevertheless it is strange to relate, not long after their dissensions they became more hardened and impenitent, and more wild, wicked, and ferocious than the Lamanites, drinking in with the traditions of the Lamanites, giving way to indolence and all manner of lasciviousness, yea, 
entirely forgetting the Lord their God. So that's Mormon's final thought as we come to the end of this unbelievable chapter. He's giving us that piece of editorial commentary, as he is wont to do. Here is some commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute manual that allows us to think about this further. The Book of Mormon repeatedly warns that those who belong to the church and then dissent become hard in their hearts and are apt to entirely forget the Lord their God. Elder Neely Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles warned that the same problems exist today when dissenters become critical of the church due to their own pride. Quote, there are the dissenters who leave the church, either formally or informally, but who cannot leave it alone. Usually anxious to please worldly galleries, they are critical or at least condescending towards the brethren. They not only seek to steady the ark, but also on occasion give it a hard shove. Often having been taught the same true doctrines as the faithful, they have nevertheless moved in the direction of dissent. They have minds hardened by pride. And there, Elder Maxwell references Daniel chapter 5, verse 20, that says, But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Again, as in the introduction of this uh, chapter, we can think about the role of pride in all of this and how it is um, something that allows us to be deceived or makes us blind to deception. President Russell M. Nelson described the consequences of contention and dissension. He said, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, saith the Lord. That's out of 3 Nephi chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. Throughout the world, saints of the Lord have learned that the path of dissent leads to real dangers. The Book of Mormon carries this warning. Not long after their dissensions, they became more hardened and impenitent and more wild, wicked and ferocious, giving way to indolence and all manner of lasciviousness, yea, entirely forgetting the Lord their God. How divisive is the force of dissension? Small acts can lead to such great consequences. Regardless of position or situation, no one can safely assume immunity to contention's terrible toll. Well, there's a great deal to think about in this chapter, and it's certainly in keeping with the purpose of the Book of Mormon that President Benson once articulated as a book which exposes the enemies of Christ. We're certainly seeing that here, when we can see the machinations of the evil one and of his servants and the way that they move about the earth in their pursuit of gain. So something to think about deeply and a theme that we'll return to over and over as we progress through the Book of Mormon. So for now, this brings us to the end of Alma, chapter 47. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect 
of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives, and most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.